Welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives Podcast. I'm Dr. Eric Crampton, Chief Economist. With me here today is Dr. Oliver Hartwich, my boss and Chief Executive. We're going to have a bit of a chat about some of the things we've been thinking about this week. This week, Oliver's been worried about the Regulatory Responsibility Act that might be coming through. And I've been worried about... Um, well, regime uncertainty, really, that uh, it's getting harder and harder to tell just what might be coming down the track, and it's harder to plan. But we'll start by start with, start with Oliver. Um, some time ago, there had been talk about a Regulatory Responsibility Act and changes to try and make regulation a little bit more accountable so that we can tell that it's actually going to be doing some good. What's been going on in this space? Well, this is a uh, long-standing issue. It was first introduced, I think, before I even came to New Zealand, and that's now nine years ago. Um, I believe the original idea came from Rodney Hyde all those years ago, I think 2009 we're talking about. And uh, that was a bill that was introduced back then. It was then passed on to various ministers for regulatory reform. And ultimately the bill was withdrawn in August 2017 when Paul Goldsmith, I believe, was in charge. Now this bill has uh, had some magic resurrection as a private member's bill for David Seymour, the act leader. And it is reintroduced in a slightly changed form, um, David Seymour added a referendum to the original bill. He wants to actually have this um, sanctioned by the public. And the idea is to con compel politicians to better policymaking and also to have a chance to have policymaking vetted by the courts, not for the courts to strike it down if it uh, didn't fulfill all the criteria, but at least for the courts to declare that actually in this particular instance, for example, the government simply didn't do the proper consultation. Okay, so I guess we could contrast with current process. So right now there are requirements to produce a regulatory impact statement or a regulatory impact analysis. It kind of varies in how... Um, how well these are undertaken and how seriously they take the cost-benefit assessment in it. But what what are the problems in that process that this bill might be trying to fix? Because we do have ongoing rolling reviews of these things. Treasury hires somebody to take a look at the quality of the statements that have been coming through. What would this be solving? Well, you're exactly right. I mean, we've got a lot of tools already. We've got the cabinet manual as well. So cabinet actually should follow process on some issues. Um, the problem is actually that the government doesn't seem to place too much of a value on them. So actually, it has suspended regulatory impact statements twice already in the last four years. So for a period of time, the government simply said, we're too busy. We can't do that. And I think the result of this kind of rushed policy making is all too visible now when you look at, for example, the oil and gas exploration ban. So that had a bunch of unforeseen consequences or unintended consequences. Well, they were not entirely unforeseen because MB actually at the time actually pointed that out, except that never really saw the light of day. That was revealed later through an Official Information Act request. So what the bill would do, the bill would actually force government to follow process. The bill would force the principles of good decision-making, the principles of good law-making, the principles of sound cost-benefit analysis onto the government. And then, of course, the government could still ignore all of that, but anyone could take this to the courts and say, hey, um, can you please check whether this was due process, whether this was done properly? The courts could declare, no, it wasn't. According to that bill, the courts couldn't then say, well, this is null and void, and um, nobody has to play by this law anymore. But the courts could basically uh, embarrass politicians enough so that for a public that cares about such matters, it would um, probably be quite a relevant decision. 
that sounds good and all, but uh, I'm still a bit of a pessimist. Uh, normally, I'm an optimist, but here I'm imagining, like in the aftermath of the oil and gas ban, um, would the companies involved really have gone to court, spending millions of dollars in court fees for something that might amount to a declaration of inconsistency, and the parliament just saying, well, that's fine, we're going to go ahead anyways, and now we're mad at you because you um, made us look bad and we're going to do other horrible things to you in regulation as punishment? Well, um, the companies don't even have to do it themselves. It could be anyone. Any New Zealander under that bill would have the right to just check on regulatory decisions. Yeah, but at what cost, right? It will cost. Um, I'm more skeptical on another uh, front, actually, and that is even if the courts declared that the decision was taken against uh, the rules and regulations set out in the regulatory um, responsibilities bill, uh, or sorry, regulatory standards bill, um, would the public then care too much about a declaration from a court? I mean, we had a few other things in the last few months where courts, for example, decided that the early stage of the lockdown was unlawful. Well, did anyone care? No, because the government saved us. So as long as the public doesn't care enough, no court or no standards bill will be able to protect them. Yeah, these kinds of things can matter at the margin. Um, I, I keep remembering um, James Buchanan was one of my, my profs at George Mason University, so he was one of the fathers of constitutional political economy. Uh, he'd gotten the Nobel in 86 for some of this kind of work in public finance and then CPE. Well, the, the Nobel is for public finance, but his specialty was really constitutional political economy, public choice. And in the end, he winds up concluding that the only thing that really, really binds is a constitutional spirit, right? So if you don't have that, that an appreciation of the deep rule of law, the laws about how laws are made and the institutions that govern them, if you don't have that, it's all kind of doom. Well, what you might be able to do with these declarations is change a few people's views at the margin. If you've got a few people that care about this, maybe it makes things a little bit more costly. But if you can have for example, attorney generals lying to parliament without consequence and nobody really cares. Correct. Um, that's exactly what I said in my column. Um, it's, it's not just um, whether the lockdown was lawful or not. Think about other measures. Think about um, the oil and gas ban. I mean, that obviously didn't make any sense from an economics point of view. It wasn't done properly. It wasn't consulted on properly. And yet the public, I think there's a, a large chunk of the public who would say, well, but we want to do something about climate change. So if they don't care whether this was done properly or consulted properly, well, we can't help them. Yeah, and then it ties into some of the things that have been worrying me, right? Because if uh, you get into spots where regulation and legislation is very ad hoc based on sort of populist impulses of the moment and political pressures of the moment without a framework that... Uh, well, make sure not only that the policies make sense, but also that they're consistent with our overall policy structure and institutions and generalized rule of law and how we deal with these. And that was your column yeah. this week in Newsroom. So you came to the conclusion in that column that New Zealand is becoming a riskier place. Yeah. So no, New Zealand is, has had very good institutions that have lasted the last few decades the changes that were built through the 80s and 90s have been fairly durable. So there's been little changes that around the edges. The Employment Re Contracts Act changed to the Employment Relations Act. We had top marginal tax rates of 39% that got imposed, went down to 38 and went away, came back. Those are kind of niggling around the edges, right? It doesn't really affect um, broad, broader issues. We can still kind of predict 
what government's going to be doing, the processes that they're going to be undertaking to affect change. And that makes it easier for people to well, form expectations, base investment decisions. It makes New Zealand a safer place for investment. You're not expecting that an arbitrary decision will come down very quickly that will substantially affect all of the numbers on which your investment plans were being built. More recently, that started going a little bit pear-shaped. The uh, I think you were triggered by a letter that the <laughs> Minister of Finance wrote to Air New Zealand. Well, that was a bit of a worry for me. So if we think back a couple of years, uh, Shane Jones, when he was in the co in coalition, uh, started mouthing off about Air New Zealand's decision to stop providing service to, uh, was it Kapiti, is a small town, mm -hmm. um, and he was standing up for small towns as regional development minister. But the Crown is 51% owner in the airline. And when... It, it's not just a majority owner, it's a majority owner that's also ultimately the regulator and that sets all of the policy environment around it. So you have to be real careful. It's not just that the majority owner might have views about how things should be run. It's that the majority owner can also set the institutional framework that affects how the whole thing operates, right? So if the majority owner doesn't get his way that way, they can do things through regulation. It's all a messy space. There was a bit of a difference yeah. back then because um, it was not the shareholding minister that, voicing well, that's these right. views. Because that was just Shane Jones. It was also a New Zealand first minister and it was part of party folklore. And it was Shane Jones. Oh, yeah. And that's what made... At that point, the CE was able to write a letter to Minister Robertson reminding everybody that Air New Zealand remains operationally independent, even though the Crown is majority owner, it would make its own best decisions based on what it saw as being best for the firm. And Minister this, Robertson even seemed a little bit embarrassed yeah. by his fellow minister. Yeah, and this time it's been a letter from the shareholding minister down to the airline that presents risk of conflict, right? So. It was packaged up in a fairly tidy looking legally kind of way that, well, because we believe this is actually what's in the best interest of the firm, therefore there's no conflict between achieving the government's objectives and achieving what's best for the firm. But it's really easy to imagine how that could go wrong, right? What happens if it doesn't wind up being the case that massive R&D expenditures by Air New Zealand on synthetic fuels that might wind up costing something like $250 per ton of carbon dioxide ab abated as compared to tree planting that might cost a fifth or less than that. But I believe the reason why you're so um, concerned is not because of Air New Zealand, because, but because well, it's course. symptomatic. Well, you get these potentials for conflict that cause issues. It seemed kind of spur of the moment in response to current political considerations, and it changes the regulatory environment for... There's a lot of firms that have the crown as a substantial or majority shareholder. And if you're a minority shareholder in any of these outfits, how should you be thinking about what the crown is going to be doing as majority shareholder? It's a but little dicey. It's it's part of a wider movement towards um, a scenario where anything goes. So we had, for example, I mean, Sam Stubbs, as far as you can take him seriously, talking this week about maybe we could just use all the Kiwi saver savings and use it towards infrastructure deployment. And I thought last time I checked, my Kiwi saver belonged to me and it was not for Sam Stubbs to decide whether he wants to spend it on infrastructure. But in the same vein, we had um, the Superfund becoming increasingly political. And that's now a political mess that can be maneuvered at will. And 
They might even get engaged in foreign policy objectives by pulling out of Israel, for example. So everything yeah. is becoming more and more political. The Reserve Bank itself, of course, now concerts is itself with not just monetary policy, but also, of course, the housing market, full employment, and every now and then climate change. So everything is becoming more political. And there is this tendency of ad hocery to just try to achieve different policy objectives with institutions that were not designed for them. No, that, that's absolutely right. I had, I'd missed the Sam Stubbs thing. That, that's a little depressing, but seems kind of consistent. Um, I had not heard that kind of push before on KiwiSaver. I had heard pushes to try and force KiwiSaver funds to be invested locally. Um, I'm really regretting that I'm in KiwiSaver at all now. Um, I had started off in the university's superannuation fund because that was the default thing when I was lecturing at Canterbury. And then they turned that into a KiwiSaver fund and it kind of stuck. But geez, given policy risk in New Zealand, I would kind of like to be in a KiwiSaver fund that was invested in anything except for New Zealand, just because it's worrying, right? It is worrying. Um, what can we do about it? Is the regulatory standards bill the answer then? Or is it part of the answer? Does it even have a chance? I mean, if um, Parliament with the current majority as it is wants to do things, they have the right basically like a dictatorship to do whatever they like for three years. Well, ultimately, only a constitutional spirit binds and we are risking getting into the spot where, well, I've described it before as the Three Stooges playing at plumbing, right? So there's this classic Three Stooges episode where uh, a plumbing we will go, I think it was called, 1930s. So the Three Stooges, if you're not familiar with them, there is a trio of buffoons in American short films uh, from the 1930s. They're pretty funny. But when they were going plumbing in somebody's basement, they, they had no clue what they were doing. And for every time they would swing the monkey wrench back trying to tighten one pipe, they were causing two other pipes to break with, with, every, with every leak that they were fixing. Policy is getting more into that space where because it's being done on an ad hoc basis without any consideration of the very likely flow on effects of it, there will be patch jobs that will have to be done for fixing the messes that are caused by each of these ones that are coming in. And then those patches will require their own patches and it just accumulates, right? Where you wouldn't get into these spots if you're following poly proper process at the outset. And then it's whether the public views the consequences of this as being the government saving us from some horrible thing each and every time, or recognizing that we just have a complete disaster in policy making that is causing all of these things. And boy, wouldn't it be better to get back to better process. Mm -hmm. Well, we're recording this podcast on a Friday morning, so it's a good uh, opportunity for me to tell you about my weekend. Um, I'm going to fly down to Wanaka later today, and I'm speaking at the Festival of Colour tomorrow morning on a panel with Kathy Arrington from the Helen Clark Foundation, Max Rashbrook, the um, social policy commentator. Um, and the topic of this conversation tomorrow morning in Wanaka will be the future of democracy. And that actually plays into exactly the things that you just talked about. So what I actually wanted to present in Wanaka was again, the localist vision, because I think this might be a rescue path for democracy. When you talk about the constitutional spirit, yes, it would be nice if we had it, but it's really difficult to recreate one. But when it comes to local decision making and local issues, it is easier to convince people that they should care. So if it's something happening in your neighborhood and you want to take, um, have, want to have a say in how your school is run, or how you want to manage traffic problems around your area, you probably get people engaged. Whereas for these big issues, especially regulatory ones and how to deal with the national airline and so on, it's really hard to convince the broader public. And so that's why I think if we devolved more decision-making to communities, we might get a better participation and better outcomes. At least that's my hope. Oh, 
I might be a little bit more pessimistic on some of the deliberation side, but at You're least it's so pessimistic. Ah, it's well, usually my rule. Ah, <laughs> but at, at least it would give you the opportunity to vote with your feet, right? So if Patoni uh, were being substantially better run than Candela, I could move to Patoni, that sort of thing. You wouldn't do that because you would have a tsunami risk. Yes, I am worried about tsunami risk. It doesn't happen in Kandahar, <laughs> at least not where you live. <laughs> it would take some pretty bad governance in the local area to make me move. Agree. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I guess um, we'll probably have to leave it here. Well, your weekend looks more exciting than mine, and I wish you luck. Thank you very much. I look forward to a really interesting panel discussion with um, Kathy and Max. Um, I haven't actually met Kathy yet, and um, I've uh, had a few interactions with Max, including in the Epidemic Response Committee. I think it was the last time we saw each other on Zoom last year. Yeah, and I've uh, chatted with Kathy before on drug policy when we were working together a bit on uh, around the cannabis legislation. It's such a small policy community yeah. in New Zealand. No, it should be good fun. So anyway, have a nice weekend, and I think to all our listeners, have a nice weekend too, and we'll talk to you again next week. Sounds good. Thanks. Bye. Bye.